Happy Halloween, everybody. This is Tanner from TamanBaseballFan.com. I'm uh, taking a walk around my neighborhood, uh, Halloween night, and uh, I say it's uh, kind of fun to uh, walk around and see all the kind of creepy decorations I've seen. Uh, to my right, I see a couple of motorcycles that are uh, uh, outfitted with a couple of skeletons, which is kind of fun. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I'll tell you this also, by the way, it is. Uh, wildly different from years past like I remember uh, a lot of uh, uh, Halloween's where you know we go out trick-or-treating and we'd be sweating because it would be so hot out uh, still in, in Houston so uh, kind of a fun change of pace I am uh, fully decked out in uh, a hoodie and sweatpants uh, and yes even socks with my sandals so <laughs> so I am a styling and profiling baby, but um, anyways, it's uh, it's fun. I'll tell you what's not fun is watching Game Seven of the World Series. Uh, don't get me wrong; it was an exciting game, it just didn't go my way, uh, and uh, that was that was unfortunate. But the series as a whole was awesome. I mean, I cannot believe it. Like there were seven games. Everybody won a won a game that was on the road, so there are no home games that were won which is insane. Um, it's really good. There's a lot of things that uh, we can kind of uh, armchair quarterback it and say, well, why didn't they do this? Why did they do that? Why'd they pull Granky? Why'd they uh, not put Cole in and you know this, that, and the other? But ultimately, uh, it's now part of baseball history. Um, the Washington Nationals won the uh, on the 150th anniversary of uh, professional baseball and that's that and nothing can change it so they did a great job they've got a fantastic team but that's not taking away anything away from the Astros they have a fantastic team and uh, I would not be surprised if they'd be back uh, next year in the fall classic as well so very much so looking forward to the 2020 season and uh, I am uh, excited to see what the Astros have especially uh, if they're going to replace uh, Cole because he's good is gone and uh <laughs> we'll see <laughs> but uh anyway so i'm going to really more talk about baseball of course or baseball cards of course so let's dive into that um two days ago i think it was no 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 it was yesterday it was before the world series um i y'all my office is a mess but uh <laughs> but uh it's uh it's just how it always is going to be i think but um what i did was I was uh, looking at a woodcut they have of the 1860, uh, 1869 uh, Cincinnati Red Stockings. And uh, this is an authentic original woodcut that's literally 150 years old at this point. And uh, it's really cool. Uh, now, right next to it, I saw um, the uh, uh, Houston Astros quad patch card that I had in. So, let me kind of describe this card a little bit. It's a 2019 Topps Museum. It's uh, got kind of like a navy blue border. Uh, the foil accents around the, the patches and uh, everything else uh, is like an emerald green. And uh, it shows uh, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, and George Springer. I like to call them the, the core four for the Houston Astros. Um, I think they'll probably stick around all together um, as a as a group for for quite a while. It might not be the case, but I think that's I think that's uh, fair to say. But 
Uh, one of the patches has like three colors, I think, or three color breaks. Another one has maybe four. Another one has a piece of the H for the uh, logo of the Astros. And, and finally, another piece ha actually has some letters from where it says uh, uh, Houston Astros um, uh, in it. So around the circle of the logo. So a uh, beautiful card, really a, a work of art. And so when I was thinking about these two pieces together, um, it's kind of fun because I see two pieces that are from two very different teams, yet both dominating uh, of their sports. So the Cincinnati Red Stockings were, uh, I if I remember correctly, the only uh, professional uh, baseball team to go uh, undefeated. And I think they went 67-0 and back in 1869, which is like a really, really big deal. Um, you know, it's massive, obviously. So uh, that's why all the baseball players have a, a 150th anniversary patch on their sleeve this year is because of that team. So um, so looking at that piece, it's very rudimentary. The woodcuts are uh, were often uh, drawn by hand and then transferred onto wood, carved into the wood where the, the ink was uh, put on the wood itself kind of like a rubber stamp, stamped down on the paper, and there's the woodcut. And uh, really, really fascinating, but still very rudimentary looking. And then you put it next to uh, the Astros car. It's like, oh my gosh, all the technology that's put into it, all the thought that's put into it. Uh, you know, not just the pictures, the high-quality, high-definition pictures of four players um, there on the same team, but also four prime pieces of patches uh, uh, from jerseys that they actually wore in baseball games. Um, and, uh, you know, even to, you think about the actual design of it, I mean, just incredible, you know, how far we've been in, uh, you know, in the past 150 years, where one was just like a drawing. And, and honestly, you ask me, that's every bit is a piece of a work of art as well. Um, because it's just a great piece and I mean it displays super well um, you know it drops jaws of course for sure uh, you know for if for any other reason than the age um, but having these two pieces are so different and yet so uh, beautiful together uh, is really kind of fun and I think even more crazy to me still is that they represent the exact same game <laughs> you know i mean yeah the rules have changed for sure uh but the love that america has had for this sport uh for a century and a half and beyond that even uh but as a professional sport for for a century and a half 150 years that's just that's just you know amazing to me i, I just can't uh can't wrap my mind around it how uh 150 years ago Kids would go to the lace publications and get some scissors out and cut these pieces out and have them for their collection so they could have a picture of the entire team. Um, you know, that's a world champion. And, and so, like, back then, you didn't really have baseball written about all that much. I mean, you know, shoot, even for the next, uh, you know, half century for the most part, I mean, it's uh, and really even the next century. I mean, to be honest with you, think about it. There's not nearly as much uh, content out there 
about baseball and baseball history compared to what there is nowadays. And, uh, you know, surely I'm talking about those first several decades for the most part. Um, but I mean, it, uh, it blows my mind that, uh, even, even still, you know, we still have these, uh, these collectibles that we can, that we can pick up. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that we've come a long way and I think it's just a, a really cool, really cool thing uh, to be able to uh, be in a hobby that spans so many years and that allows us to uh, collect so many different things and uh, yet still share the same bond. And uh, so I wanted to talk about a little bit uh, to kind of dovetail into what I'm saying here is I want to talk about a, a, a very very super exciting card that I picked up recently. And this card, before I tell you exactly what it is, I'll tell you who it's of. Uh, it is of uh, the face of baseball history, um, the baseball player that, even if you don't know baseball, you know this name. And uh, uh, like literally I could go knock on the door of any houses around here. I'm looking around, uh, I see dozens of houses around me. I can knock on anybody's door. And I can say, hey, uh, name one baseball player. And I can almost guarantee you that uh, 10 times out of 10, they'll be able to say this person. So I want you to think about that for about 10 seconds in your head. Uh, who do you think I could be thinking, uh, could be talking about? Do you have any ideas? I think you do. Uh, I'll give you a hint. He played for the Red Sox as well as the Yankees. He's more well-known for the Yankees. His name is Babe Ruth. Uh, let me tell you about this card. First of all, I'll tell you about a uh, couple other Babe Ruth cards I have as well, which I'm so happy I have them. But first one is a uh, 1932 Sinella Margarine uh, Babe Ruth baseball card. And it's larger than your standard size cards. Uh, and this is one that I recommend for anybody that doesn't have a Babe Ruth uh, to cut their teeth on. Um, it's a beautiful piece. It's actually something that's distributed in Germany. It doesn't have his name on the front or anything, um, but you know it's definitely Babe Ruth. You can tell very easily it, uh, that it is. And it's just a beautiful card. And interestingly enough, you can find a low-grade copy um, that even uh, like presents beautifully for two, three, four hundred dollars. And uh, its uh, significance to me is number one, uh, there's a lot of turmoil uh, in the 30s uh, in Germany when it came to uh, uh, Hitler and you know the Nazis and everything, which is you know kind of adds a little bit of intrigue to it. Um, very sad, sad, sad uh, time in, in world history. Absolutely, but um, you know, kind of makes it kind of makes it interesting, uh, and you know, the fact also that um, you know everything's written in German on the back. Um, but they're plentiful cards. Uh, but another thing that's interesting is that 1932 is the year that Babe Ruth called his shot, and uh, yeah, there's controversy about whether he did or not. Um, but uh, still, as the <laughs> uh, as everyone uh, would like to believe, at the very least. I do believe it also because that's just the guy, it's just how he was. Um, uh, you know, this card was created the same year uh, that he had his called shot. And to me personally, uh, 
having a card, uh, uh, an interesting card uh, of the same year that something happened uh, that's significant is, is interesting to me. So for instance, um, I'll give you an example of uh, Roger Maris. Uh, I don't have any Maris cards. Uh, I don't really, I don't know, I'm not really a massive fan of Roger Maris. I think he uh, had an amazing 61 season, of course. Um, and I think he and Mickey Mantle were uh, in the home run race against each other for quite a while until Mantle got hurt. But, uh, you know, for me, the uh, number one card that sticks out uh, for Roger Maris for me is not his rookie card from 1958 Tops. It's from his, uh, what was it, third year, I guess? Uh, 1961 Tops, because that's the year he hit 61 home runs to break Babe Ruth's uh, record. So to me, uh, that has special meaning. Um, so the 32 Sonella, which I interestingly enough just uh, found out about the other day that that was the called shot uh, game, but um, I think it's just a, a beautiful piece of baseball history that wasn't even created in America. And so like, that's how big Babe Ruth was back then even. Um, so check that out. Uh, the second card they have is a 1933 Gaudi uh, Babe Ruth. It's, uh, it's created a PSA 1, and uh, it's got a, a crease that you could tell in a tiny pinhole, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, but you can't really see either unless you hold them up to the light, and that's kind of my perfect uh, storm of, uh, of a card because I love low-grade super key cards that present very nicely. And so this one hits on all cylinders for me. So, uh, you know, the in 33, uh, Gaudi had uh, four different flavors of Babe Ruth. They had the, uh, um, I think 32 or 34 had, maybe it was 33, had one called Worldwide Gum that was a similar uh, card to Gaudi as well. But anyways, the main, most popular cards, 1933 Gaudi, um, two are the same, but they have different color backs or backgrounds of the front card. I think one is yellow and one is like orange or red or something. Um, and it's a close up of him having just swung. Now another one is, has a green background in the front. And I think he's just, I don't remember what he's doing. I can't picture him in my head what he's doing. But the fourth one is probably his most popular, most famous card ever, which is the reason why I chose to go after it. Uh, it's got a beautiful uh, background of a uh, uh, baseball stadium or you know him being in the ballpark at least. Full body shot of him having just swung uh, like for practice or something. So uh, whenever I think of Babe Ruth, baseball cards that's the one that always comes to my mind um, and so that's the one that I love the most so um, I knew if I wanted to get one I wanted it to be that one uh, and I believe even though that's like close to the end of his career I think Beckett considers those his rookies or something um, not really sure why <laughs> um, and maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering that wrong but that's how I recall uh, seeing it in Beckett, but anyway, so the 33 Gaudi, uh, significantly more uh, pricey than the 32 Sonella, but you know, there's a reason for that. It's the, uh, in my opinion, the, the face of uh, Babe Ruth cards. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody's seen it before. 
and you know it's definitely not the most valuable i mean his most valuable is like a um i think it's like a 1916 uh supplement card or something like that uh uh, you see, I don't even remember. It's just a, it's an obscure card, but um, because it is his like true rookie, of course that's gonna be worth significantly, significantly better, more uh, money. So uh, I'm here to talk to you about the card uh, that I picked up as my third Babe Ruth, and it is uh, the 1919 W514 strip card. Now, a lot of people are not familiar with strip cards, so let me tell you a little bit, a little bit about them. They are actually produced on uh, more like a, a paper uh, as opposed to cardboard. So it's like more of a thin cardstock. And they were uh, among the first, if not the first, uh, cards that were actually produced um, to sell on their own as opposed to being sold as a uh, promotional item with uh, or given away as a promotional item with uh, cigarettes or candy or bread or whatever so it's kind of cool so um, if you take a look at them and uh, look at the difference between the strip cards of the uh, late teens and, and 20s you're going to notice a big difference in quality as well uh, from even cards that were that were made decades prior to that, and it's my understanding that the reason for this is because uh, World War One had just ended at the end of 1918, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, I love history; I'm just not really good with the dates a lot of times. So, anyways, basically, these cards were made like right at the tail end of it. So, our economy, everything that we had into this country of ours, was going for war efforts, not for marketing things like baseball cards or candy or gum or anything like that. So uh, that's why uh, if you take a look at, let's say a T205 gold border, oh, I love those T205 gold borders. Beautiful artwork, um, you know, just great cards. But you, uh, and, and they're made in like uh, 1909, 10, 11, something like that. Um, now, you look at uh, the strip cards that were made about a decade after that, um, you'll say, huh, well, the gold borders look a lot, uh, a lot better from a design perspective. Uh, perspective. And, uh, you know, that's why. <laughs> you know, that's why. There's, uh, we weren't coming off of a world war. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, 1919, I mean, you know, that's a... You know, you're looking at a time period that's between the end of World War One and the Depression. Uh, so, you know, it's it's kind of fun to be able to measure American history through the the quality of baseball cards. But the W514 set is really really intriguing to me. They they are very uh, their their uh, artwork is much more simple uh, compared to the. T205s or T206s from a decade prior, um, but uh, they look like uh, they almost look like little mini Picassos, and uh, a lot of them, uh, personally, from my point of view, I just don't really like, um, and I wouldn't collect. But uh, uh, you know, there I think there were probably if I if I remember correctly, five six different strip card sets, maybe more even five or six or so that I'm aware of. The W514 set 
is amazing. Uh, I really love the colors that they had um, and, uh, you know, everything. So, uh, including the, the player collection, I mean, the set has like seven of the eight black socks in there, including my Joe Jackson. My Shoeless Joe is, is from that set as well. Uh, it's got all kinds of star power, but the main two car, uh, cards I cared about, which are the two big heavy hitters, is the Shoeless Joe Jackson and the Babe Ruth. Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson is uh, the star of the show for that entire set, but um, I am very, uh, very much so willing to go on record here and say that uh, the Babe Ruth is, uh, is drastically underpriced which is one of the reasons why I've been looking for one. Uh, it doesn't come up too often for sale. And when it does, uh, it's going to, uh, generally speaking, be in really bad condition. And as with a lot of W514 cards, um, they're going to be, uh, if they're graded, they're going to be graded as authentic or altered. And uh, you know, I would recommend not shying away from those because of that, uh, because that's pretty common. Uh, and it's not necessarily because anybody was uh, doing anything as far as monkey business goes. Um, it's mainly because uh, they were produced in strips or blocks. And so uh, the way that uh, you get the, the one card that you wanted is you had to cut them out as a kid. So what that means is if you didn't cut perfectly on that dotted line a hundred years ago, literally a hundred years ago this year, um, then guess what? PSA, SGC, all of them is going to say, nope, uh, this is an altered card. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't worry about that a lick. Um, you know, you can be lucky and you know, find one that's got a numerical grade, but, you know, to me, when it comes to those W514s, uh, the visual appeal is the, is the uh, main story there. So, uh, now to talk about Babe Ruth, um, when I got this card, I really wanted to talk about, or really wanted to research a little bit about um, where this stood in history. So the 33 Gaudi they have is like, uh, like I said, Babe Ruth's most popular card. Uh, what I would, uh, what I would argue, and the 32 Sinella is probably the most beautiful, cost-effective one that has, uh, um, you know, the called shot story behind it. So. What makes this 1919 514 W514 uh, so significant? So there's actually a number of reasons, and I want to kind of go in uh, to what my thoughts are on the whole thing because it's kind of a fun little history lesson uh, to give you as well uh, when we're describing this card. So first of all, uh, it's kind of a profile picture of him, uh, more of a drawing, and uh, it's of him that, if I remember correctly, uh, he had just swung the bat, and uh, the uh, the background is yellow, and uh, the um, his sleeves are red, and his hat is pink. And so, uh, you know, I'll give you um, something interesting about that later. But at the bottom, it says Babe Ruth, home run king, New York Yankees, or something similar to that. So it's not in front of my face right now, so I can't tell you exactly what it is, but that's basically the gist of it. So, uh, the thing that, that's most interesting about this is, uh, this is most likely uh, Babe Ruth's first New York Yankees card ever. And uh, because it appears that uh, he was drawn as a member of the Boston Red Sox, 
arguably this could also be his last Red Sox card. <laughs> and so uh, there are some uh, cards, I think there's like one at least even from 1923 uh, that shows him as a member of the Red Sox. But, um, you know, he, I wouldn't really count that because uh, he actually uh, signed with the Red Sox at the very tail end of 1919, if I remember correctly. So it's kind of a fun card that intersects Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees. Now, why is that so significant? Um, for obvious reasons, of course, that was, a, that was a big deal back then. But let me tell you why it's a big deal. Um, early on in his, in his career, um, Babe Ruth was a pitcher. Now, he was not just a pitcher. He was a dominant pitcher. He actually uh, um, did many amazing things as, as a pitcher. Uh, before he was known as a, as a home run king. For example, uh, he went up against uh, the big train, Walter Johnson, uh, if I remember correctly, about uh, six times. Now, in those head-to-head -head matchups, Ruth went 5-1. and one. Now, to give you an idea of who Walter Johnson is, if you take a look at any of the records online, he is al almost always seen as either the top one or two pitchers in Major League Baseball history. You know, think about that for a second. Um, big train, Walter Johnson, he uh, played for the Senators. Um, he was uh, uh, so amazing that in spite of the fact that we have in recent decades, uh, Pedro Martinez, Greg Maddox, Justin Verlander, Roger Clemens, Randy Johnson, Garrett Cole, all of these guys, Max Scherzer, um, Dwight Gooden in his dominant stretch for a while, uh, Earl Hershiser, I mean, like, all of these amazing, Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, all of these amazing pitchers, and uh, nobody uh, in these past several decades had been able to crack uh, what Walter Johnson did um, back then. And Babe Ruth, as a pitcher, beat him. <laughs> five out of six times <laughs> and to me that is uh that is incredible and uh there's a uh a thing i'd like to uh read to you let me see if i can uh get it on my phone as i'm walking here um of what ty cobb said about him let me uh hold up real quick and uh as this is coming up let me tell you about ty cobb obviously Cobb was probably um, what I consider to be the most dominant hitter and uh, of his time, certainly base stealer. Um, an incredible, incredibly competitive player. Not many people liked him, uh, but that's how competitive he was. He was just insane as far as, as, far as hitting goes. Um, I'm not sure where I'd place him as far as uh, top baseball player goes, but um, I think there's definitely a, a possibility of calling him a top five guy um so let me, let me see here i'm trying to scroll and find this graphic it's on my website um and probably should have uh, pulled this up okay here we go so this is this is what uh what uh ty cobb said about walter johnson says, on August 2nd, 1907, 
I encountered the most threatening side I ever saw on the wall field. He was a rookie, and we licked, his, we licked our lips as we warmed up for the first game of a doubleheader in Washington. Evidently, manager Pongo Joe Cantillion of the Nats uh, had picked a rube at, uh, out of the cornfields of the deepest bushes uh, to pitch against us. He was a tall, shambling galoot of about 20, <laughs> with arms so long that they hung far out of his sleeves, uh, and with a sidearm delivery that looked unimpressive at first glance. One of the tigers imitated a cow mooing, and we hollered at Cantillion, get the, pick, get the pitchfork ready, Joe. Your hayseed's on his way back to the barn. The first time I faced him, I watched him take it easy, I take that easy wind up, and then something went past me that made me flinch. The thing just hissed with danger. We couldn't touch him. Every one of us knew we'd met the most powerful arm ever turned loose in a ballpark. And that was Ty Cobb speaking of Walter Johnson. And uh, that goes to show you how amazing, I mean, you think about Ty Cobb, by the way. Uh, he wasn't the type of guy to speak well of anybody. <laughs> He would be the guy that says, uh, you know, I can rip apart anybody over here. And uh, he, was, he wasn't that way with Walter Johnson. Uh, so speaking of uh, Walter Johnson also, by the way, um, Babe Ruth uh, had like a lifetime career of, I think, 288 uh, with him and uh, had something like nine home runs. So at first glance, it doesn't seem all that impressive. But uh, when, you, when you drill down, and see what everybody else did it so Babe Ruth hit a home run off him every 16 or so at bats um, the thing is is Walter Johnson uh, for the rest of the players that went against him from what I read like uh, he only gave up a home run one every 230 at bats or something uh, that's tremendous to me so uh, that kind of paints a picture um, before I talked about the home run portion of it anyways, of how good and dominant of a pitcher Babe Ruth was. Uh, now, they took notice that he uh, could handle the bat as well uh, in Boston. Now, let me tell you something. Boston had a great thing going, by the way. So, I think Babe Ruth came up with uh, them in 1914. And by that time, uh, I think Boston already had a couple of world championships under their belt. Now, keep in mind, the first World Series was 1903 and uh, the Red Sox were called the Boston Americans if I remember correctly so they won that one uh, from 1903 to 1919 which is when Babe Ruth uh, left um, they were basically winning an average of one World Series out of every three tries out of every three World Series that, that were uh, you know that there were so uh, New York Yankees had not even touched the World Series yet. So, what happened was after a while, um, at the very end, first of all, everybody thought that, I guess, Babe Ruth had signed a contract with the Red Sox, but apparently uh, what happened was uh, that contract was sold or something for $100,000, which was unheard of money back then. Um, I think it was December 26th of 1919. So Babe Ruth then becomes a Yankee. And at this point, uh, it's important to note as well that Babe Ruth was already the single season home run record holder at 24 or something. And 
uh, I think, uh, um, so I wish I were in front of my computer to look this up and tell you, but uh, one of the previous uh, record holders uh, was only a record holder because like the outfield porch was like 214 feet away or something like that, <laughs> which is crazy to me. Um, I don't know if that was in Major League Baseball or if that was like uh, in one of the other leagues back in the 19th century, I don't recall. But um, anyway, so 1919, I think it is, Babe Ruth establishes himself as a home run king. So the W514 card says home run king. It's most likely talking about that 1919 season. So uh, Babe Ruth makes the transition uh, from pitcher to hitter and uh, uh, goes to the New York Yankees and he ends up uh, hitting 50-something home runs. I think it was, I uh, wish I had it in front of me, 54, 57, 59. I mean, he had just decimated everyone. And, uh, you know, to kind of put this into perspective, um, for me, whenever I think of, like, the most dominant uh, hitting season ever, I like to think of Barry Bonds in 2001. And uh, that was just a, a sight to behold. I think that's the year he hit 73 home runs. But when you take a step back, um, you got to look. And, and this is kind of what I like to do. I don't like measuring one player from one era uh, solely based on stats with another player in another era. What I like to do instead, personally, myself, is I like to measure them based upon what the rest of baseball was doing at the time. So in 2001, uh, Barry Bonds hit 73, which is obviously the all-time record holder uh, of single-season home runs. Uh, I think every single team cumulatively uh, hit more than that, uh, obviously. Well, that wasn't the case with Babe Ruth. When Babe Ruth uh, uh, set the record, uh, back in uh, 1920, uh, he hit more home runs by himself than most of the teams did with all the players combined on each team. So, in other words, like uh, Babe Ruth might hit 57 or 54, whatever it was. Uh, Boston as a team might have hit 32. Uh, Washington as a team might have hit 27. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but um, that's basically how it was. So, uh, which is why I would consider quite possibly to say that Babe Ruth was the best uh, baseball player of all time and that there's a reason that he's the face of baseball and always will be. Uh, there will be a lot of Ken Griffey Juniors and Babe Ruths, I'm sorry, Ken Griffey Juniors and Derek Jeters and uh, Mike Trouts, uh, Albert Pujols. There will be a lot of these guys that come and go. Uh, Mickey Mantle and, uh, you know, and yeah, I got to give props to Willie Mays, obviously. He's considered by many to be the best baseball player ever. Uh, for me, right now at least, and that could change <laughs> uh, as I look into more things, but uh, for now I'd say Babe Ruth solely because uh, he single-handedly elevated the game of baseball. And uh, he did it in such a way that it took the, uh, the eyes of our nation and put them on him. And, uh, and it not only fundamentally changed baseball, it also changed uh, baseball history. So let me tell you what happened with the Red Sox after that. I think you know. The curse of the Bambino is a big thing. Might not seem like a big thing now because it's been broken for 15 years now. But uh, with the Red Sox being as dominant as they were in those early years of baseball, it showed no signs of stopping. 
when uh, Babe Ruth leaves, uh, the Red Sox left, <laughs> uh, so to speak. They, uh, they didn't win another World Series until 2004, so nearly a century later. What did the Yankees do? Well, the Yankees, before Babe Ruth, did absolutely nothing. When Babe Ruth came onto the scene, they did nothing but win, it seems like. Uh, so over that same period of time, uh, or similar, uh, they, uh, I think they, I think the uh, Yankees actually won their last World Series in, I don't know, could be wrong, I think 2009? Could be wrong there, but anyways. Uh, ever since they had Babe Ruth, uh, they won 27 world titles, more than any other team ever, like by a long shot. And to me, that just, that speaks volumes. Uh, in, those, in those formative years, the very early years, uh, you know, Babe Ruth was putting butts in seats like nobody else. Uh, he energized our nation. And uh, yeah, he was a womanizer. Yeah, I feel like, if I remember correctly, I think he uh, abused his wife or something. Uh, you know, so probably not the nicest of people. But from a, uh, a what he did on the field uh, was just absolutely tremendous. And uh, yeah, I think uh, one thing to uh, to know as well is, of course, you know, we have all kinds of different. Uh, uh, things that we uh, that our baseball players nowadays uh, can do to uh, make sure that they're in, in the top physical uh, uh, form, and obviously Babe Ruth uh, was uh, was not that way. He was uh, drinking beer and eating hot dogs all day long, and uh, probably came into uh, various games drunk and all that. But uh, uh, there's something really special about him. Uh, he's had natural talent and. The fact that he uh, stood so far above everybody else, uh, his peers, as he is playing, uh, I think speaks volumes. And so, you know, that's why I don't like uh, saying, oh, hey, look, uh, you know, if Babe Ruth played today, then, you know, he wouldn't do anything. He probably, you know, hit barely above the Mendoza line and all this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's true, but I mean, remember, uh, back then, the uh, average height of a person in America was probably uh, closer to 5'7 for a man or something like that. And, uh, you know, we didn't have all these other, uh, you know, scientifically measured and weighted uh, bats and balls and everything back then. Completely different game. Um, but uh, nevertheless, the whole thing that makes it so interesting is, uh, is again, just how... Uh, how, how much he stood above everybody else uh, as he was playing. So, uh, you know, the, the, the card that I picked up, the 1919 W514 uh, Babe Ruth, to me kind of uh, uh, symbolizes something far greater than just Babe Ruth. Uh, it is basically a, a, a cardboard... Uh, memento, I guess you could say, of the uh, um, a dramatic shift in baseball itself, baseball history, how things have played out. Um, and uh, I think that's probably why I'm so excited about it. And, uh, you know, it being the first uh, Yankees card of his, most likely, and, and 
arguably even the last Red Sox card of his. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it's just just a neat card, and it's uh, very uh, very affordable. I put that in quotes, of course, but uh, compared to what it actually is, when you take into consideration um, who it is and what it is, I think that uh, a lot of cards from that era have uh, have been really swept under the rug. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of people don't don't notice or don't uh, haven't been paying attention what uh, what exactly some of these cards really stand for and what they really are. And uh, I think if people actually knew, then they'd probably be putting more dollars into those cards. Uh, that's actually baseball history, uh, as opposed to the next 16-year-old kid that uh, you know did well in you know his high school uh, baseball team. So. Um, I don't know. That, that's kind of where uh, that's kind of where my head is. Um, obviously, there's a lot of money to be made, to be made for uh, prospecting, but for vintage stuff, especially the key guys, uh, you know, for me, it's uh, it's uh, multi-pronged. Being number one, uh, fantastic investment. It's uh, been proven to be a fantastic investment. These cards have been, uh, and uh, number two, the fact that that's baseball history, and. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to be able to tell people, yeah, I've actually got a Babe Ruth card, <laughs> but it's not just any Babe Ruth card. It's uh, you know his first Yankee or something. So, uh, anyways, I guess that's all I have to say. It's uh, one of those things I like uh, whenever I pick up a monumental card. I like being able to talk about it and uh, kind of give the story why. And I really truly hope to be able to write about it and show a picture of it to show it off and everything. Super excited about that also. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of it's really just a matter of getting time, uh, to do it. And so it's fun to be able to talk about one on my walk. And, uh, you know, so hopefully later on this week, I'll, uh, have another super collector on by the way and, uh, talk to them. But, uh, anyway, so other than that, thanks guys for, for listening and, uh, hope you all have a great rest of the Halloween.